I got this, uh, this letter in the church mail recently addressed to the, addressed to the church chairman. It says, The perfect pastor preaches exactly ten minutes. He condemns sin roundly but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. until midnight and is also the church janitor. The perfect pastor makes $40 a week, donates $30 a week to the church, wears good clothes, drives a good car, and buys good books. He's 29 years old and has 40 years' worth of experience. The perfect pastor has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends most of his time with senior citizens. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to the congregation. He makes 15 home visits a day and is always in his office so he can be handy when needed. The perfect pastor always has time for deacon's council and all of its committees. He never misses the meeting of any church organization and is always busy evangelizing the unchurched. If your pastor does not measure up, put your church name at the bottom of this list and send this letter to six other churches that are tired of their pastor, too. (laughs) Then bundle up your pastor and send them to the church at the top of the list. If no one breaks his chain in one week, you will receive 1,642 pastors. One of them will be perfect. Have faith in this letter. One church didn't send the letter on and got its old pastor back in less than three months. You may notice that Guy is gone this week. <laughs> he's, uh, he's actually uh, biking the Courage Classic with Jim Green and Carson Stolper and Bob Stolper, and I understand they're doing very well and having a lot of fun. Now, last time I gave a sermon here, I asked Jill afterwards how it went. Uh, she said that it reminded her of the peace of God and of the love of God. <laughs> I thought I was doing pretty well, you know. So I asked her, how so? And she said, well, it reminded me of the peace of God because it passed all understanding. (laughs) And it reminded me of the love of God because it endured forever. (laughs) Undaunted. I'm back. A few months ago, I felt the Lord leading me to ask Guy if I could talk about forgiveness when he was gone. Forgiveness is God's way of dealing with a world where people consumed by sin turn from God and hurt other people. There may be no concept more important in our faith and certainly nothing more valuable in human interaction than forgiveness. The gospel is the message of God's forgiveness extended to us. God began by forgiving us, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. He invites us. In fact, he requires us to forgive each other, and that's what we're going to be talking about next week. I pray that we'll all be drawn closer to the true heart of God, a loving God, and that we will live out our relationships in a way that authentically reflect our life in him. And that glorifies him. Nothing is more foreign to sinful human nature than forgiveness. When someone hurts us, forgiveness is a gross violation of justice. When we're on the receiving end of mercy, we regard forgiveness as the greatest of all virtues, characteristic of divine grace. So clearly we recognize justice and mercy as great virtues. God is described repeatedly as merciful and just. So two quick neighbor questions. What is mercy and what is justice? Just take a minute. Think about it. Say what comes into your mind.
We'll just have people just have, I'll just repeat what they say. Anybody? What's mercy? Charissa, of course, has it. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Okay, anyone else? Okay, what's justice? Justice is when you do get what you deserve. (laughs) Okay, anything else? All right. Amen, brother. Everybody hear that? Mercy is what I want given to me, and justice is what I want given to everyone else. Mercy is the relief of suffering or kind and compassionate treatment of an offender or of somebody under your power. Justice is much more complex. It is moral rightness, equity, fair treatment, equal treatment irrespective of one's status. But there's also something that's described as biblical justice. Learn to do right. Melanie, do we have slides? Hopefully, yes. Yay. All right. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case for the widow, says in Isaiah. This is what the Lord says. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of his oppressor, the one who has been robbed, in Jeremiah. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another, in Zechariah. I like to think of mercy as seeing someone caught in the current of a river and pulling her out to safety and of justice as going upstream and preventing someone from throwing her into the river. But biblical justice is also appropriate punishment for wrongdoing. God's word says that he will punish every sin. Exodus 23 says, I will not acquit the guilty. And Galatians 6 warns us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, he will reap. How does he reconcile these concepts? If God, who is perfect and holy, hates injustice, how can he allow oppressors to go unpunished or to pardon sin? He could just ignore or overlook evil or let sin go unpunished. But to do so would be unjust, and God is perfectly just. His word tells us that he will not acquit the guilty. Psalm 11, 7-11 says, God is angry with the wicked every day, and we are all in the same boat. Those who violate some minor point of God's law are as guilty as if we had broken every commandment. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. No sin is trivial. There is no hierarchy of sin. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one, says Romans 3. And despite being loved by God, we are children of wrath, spiritually dead, with no ability to love God, to obey God, or to please God, as it says in Romans 8. God, who you remember from last week's sermon, (laughs) on the other hand, is infinitely holy and righteous. 
His justice requires the punishment of every violation of his law. And the, penal- and the penalty is severe. The wages of sin is what? Yeah. Ah, I hate that. So our predicament seems pretty bleak. Each of us is under the looming sword of God's judgment. Wait a minute, you say. That's not how I feel about God. That doesn't jive with my concept of who God is. The God you're describing is vengeful and consumed with bloodlust. The God I know is my friend. I am his child. He loves me. He searched the horizon and ran to me when I was still a long way off. He's the God of eternal life. God is love, and nothing can separate me from his love. That's the God I know, and you're right. You're absolutely right. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I can relate to this. I didn't come to Christ when I was confronted by my own sin. I came to Christ when I saw the joy of the Lord manifested in Jill Anderson and Ellen Wisner, now Jill Richmond and Ellen Green. And I wanted what they had, joy. But I came to know the depth of that joy when I understood how much God had to love me in order to send Jesus Christ to the cross. There are many concepts of atonement. They're often presented as mutually exclusive. I've come to believe that each is an incomplete reflection of Christ on the cross, sort of like blind men feeling an elephant, and each thinking the elephant is only the part that he is feeling. So God is love. He is your father. He is your friend. God is all those things. But is that all that God is? God is also a consuming fire. And he is the one who judges justly. In his love, he seeks to restore us to a loving relationship with him because his great love for us, in his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. See, that's the good news. God does justify the ungodly, covers our transgressions, and doesn't take our iniquity into account. To the man who trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Amen. How can God grant such forgiveness without compromising his own standard of justice? How can he justify sinners without himself being unjust? How can he forgive sinners without going back on his word that he will punish every transgression? The answer, of course, is that God himself made his son Jesus the atonement for our sins. Now, of course, many of you here this morning could nod knowingly at those words, but I'd ask your forbearance as I tread these familiar, uh, this familiar ground that you might get a fresh appreciation for the significance, the depth, and the reality of God's love and forgiveness. Christ's atonement for our sin is the most glorious truth in all of Scripture. It explains how God can remain just while justifying sinners and is the only hope for sinners like me seeking forgiveness. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, that is, as the one who would take away sin. Through faith in his blood, he did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. To demonstrate at the present time his justice so as to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
But don't mistake this divine grace as some sort of benign forbearance by which God simply excuses sin and looks the other way to accommodate what is unholy. Hebrews 2 reminds us that every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. And here we are face to face with the hard part of atonement. Both in the Old Testament in Leviticus, where it says it is the blood that makes atonement for life, and in the New Testament in Hebrews, where it says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Make it clear that only a blood sacrifice can atone for sin and appease God's anger at sin. God must fulfill his demands for justice and his forgiveness is impossible without a satisfactory substitutionary sacrifice. Remember, reforming ourselves can't atone for past sins, nor can it provide the perfect righteousness necessary to please God. A perfect sacrifice must bear the sinner's punishment vicariously, and of course that's what happened on the cross. God made him who had no sin to be sin, that is, to be a sin offering for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul distills this aspect of the gospel into a single sentence. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this one sentence sets forth the grounds of all forgiveness. First, it speaks of substitution. Surely he took up our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Hallelujah. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ bore the punishment for our sin. He died our death. But every... um, God treated Christ like a sinner and punished him for all the sins of those who would believe. He suffered not just humiliation, flogging, nails, and death, but every ounce of God's fury against sin. This wasn't God in a bad mood or having a bad day. And the atonement wasn't a need for vengeance or some sort of bloodlust on God's part. He did it out of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it through him. But his holy, his righteous hatred of sin is his holy nature. It is inherent in him. He is loving. He is love. He is eager to save. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, it says in Ezekiel. But apart from Christ's atoning work, no sinner would ever have any hope of salvation. So Christ died as a propitiation for our sin. That is the satisfaction, the total satisfaction of the divine demands on behalf of the sinner. Jesus paid it all. And in paying it all, his righteousness is imputed to all of us. Whoa. Imputed. Where'd that word come from? (laughs) From a lawyer. Imputation speaks of a legal reckoning. To impute guilt is to assign guilt to a person's account. 
To impute righteousness is to reckon a person righteous. The guilt of righteousness imputed is real, but it is independent of the person to whom it is accounted. Although we may be new creations in Christ, we are not made righteous in reality. We are accounted righteous. So if you, like the Apostle Paul, don't do what you want to do and hate what you do do, that is, if you don't feel like you're righteous, you're right. You're not perfect. And Jesus, who, was, who had no sin, was made sin for us. That is, our guilt was imputed or accounted to him, and our penalty for it was executed against him. It did not remake his character. He did not sin, but he bore our guilt for us. Hallelujah. To try and think how this works, let's look at Paul's letter to Philemon. There are three main characters in this New Testament book. Philemon, a slave owner. Onesimus, a runaway slave. And Paul, the apostle who was under house arrest in Rome. Philemon had come to Christ through Paul's ministry, probably when Paul was in uh, Ephesus. The two were longtime friends and had ministered together. Onesimus had run away to Rome, which is where a lot of runaway slaves ran away to, uh, probably embezzling money or property from Philemon when he went. Onesimus encountered Paul in Rome and also came to Christ through Paul's ministry in Rome. The epistle to Philemon was written by Paul and carried by Tychicus, accompanying Onesimus back to his master. It's an appeal from Paul to Philemon to receive and forgive Onesimus and to restore him, not just as a slave, but as a beloved brother in Christ. In addition, Paul makes an astonishing proposal to Philemon. Welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I will pay it back. Paul was graciously offering to make restitution on Onesimus' behalf for whatever his wrongs had cost Philemon. Paul was asking Philemon to put Onesimus' debt on his, Paul's, account. That is, charge it to me. And credit Onesimus with the apostle's own merit. Welcome him as you would welcome me. This is precisely how Christ justifies the sinner. Having paid the the debt of our sin, he imputes to us his own righteousness, and God receives us on that basis. Just as the guilt of sinners was imputed to Christ, his righteousness is imputed to all who believe in him. Scripture repeatedly teaches that the righteousness by which sinners are are redeemed, the only means by which we are reconciled to God, is through righteousness that is imputed to us. As early as Genesis 15, we read, Abram believed the Lord... And he reckoned him, that is, he credited uh, credited to him as righteousness. Paul uses Romans 4 as a model for how all believers are justified. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. So the idea of imputation is crucial to understanding how sinners can be reconciled to God. We become righteous by the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. But remember the important implications of this. Jesus did not become sinful in order to bear our guilt 
And by the same token, we are not perfect when we are credited with his righteousness. This means that our forgiveness is not dependent on prior moral reform on our part, our ability not to sin in the future, to do penance, to perform rituals, nor is it dependent on anything else that we do or try to do to please God. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. Our forgiveness occurs immediately and permanently, just as it did for the thief on the cross when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. All this may sound a bit transactional or, or legal to you, but remember that this is truly the miracle of God's forgiveness. Notice the sinner's reconciliation is both initiated and obtained on the sinner's behalf wholly by God. We contribute nothing of merit to any of this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The relationship between us and God is never restored because we decide to change our ways and make amends before God. We could never do enough. And beside, all our best efforts are tainted with sin. As it's written in Isaiah, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Many of us think that reconciliation is something we're supposed to accomplish by deciding to stop rejecting God. That's a misunderstanding of the gospel. Our reconciliation occurs not when we decide to accept him, but rather when he decides to accept us. But the prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to recognize that you need it. Now, this union with Christ at the time of our reconciliation with God if it's authentic, necessarily and inevitably results in a changed life. But that changed life is in no sense what merits divine forgiveness. True conversion results in our being conformed to the image of Christ, but forgiveness is fully ours before any Christ-likeness ever appears. Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So how does one obtain this righteousness? By faith in Jesus. By believing. Faith is the prerequisite for justification, for forgiveness from God, and for reconciliation with God. No matter what atonement, what view of atonement you may hold, I think the following sentence sums it all up. Everyone is wrong, everyone is loved, and everyone is called to recognize it and to turn to God. God offers forgiveness and reconciliation freely to all who come to him. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. We can offer nothing to God. We just need to accept what he is offering to us. If there are any of you who here this morning who hearing this and longing for freedom and forgiveness have never asked God to forgive your sins and bring you back to him, and you'd like to, Please pray this prayer with me. 
And for those of you who already believe Jesus Christ stood in your place and in so doing reconciled you to God, I'd encourage you to pray along with me that, the God, would, that God would give you a fresh sense of the joy of your salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, I've done things in my life that I'm not proud of and some things that I'm really ashamed of. I've had thoughts about people that demean them. I've injured them in my mind and perhaps even in deed. And I have forgotten that you love them every bit as much as you love me. I have made them less than created in your image, Lord. Lord, I know that it is you that I have sinned against. Forgive me, Lord, and have mercy on me. I know with all my heart that you love me more than I can imagine. And because you love me, you gave me your son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for my sin and take my place on the cross. It was my sin that held him on the cross, not the nails pounded through him. I know my name is written on his heart, and my sin is carved into his hands. How can I say thank you, Jesus, other than to ask you to be my Savior and my Lord? I ask your Holy Spirit to give me the power to live my life in a way that pleases and brings praise to you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. If any of you prayed that prayer for the first time this morning, I would encourage you by saying that there is rejoicing in heaven for you today. Please don't keep it to yourself. Talk with somebody about it, maybe even somebody in church this morning, so that you can rejoice together. Our life in Christ is to be lived together in community and fellowship. And in that spirit, I invite all of you who have given your life to Jesus to join together this morning and share the communion table.